evidence and answers. Many Christians find prophecy in the scriptures hard to understand and difficult to interpret, and so they avoid it. But since so much of what we read in the Bible involves prophecy, what do we do? To help us with this, Dr. Ron Rhodes has come out with a new book, The Prophecy Answer Book. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, Pat will interview Dr. Ron Rhodes and discuss his new book, The Prophecy Answer Book. This book offers answers to some of the most common questions concerning prophecies in the Bible. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Here's Pat now with the conclusion to his interview with Dr. Ron Rhodes. Once you dig beneath just a little bit and you understand the original Greek, I think it makes a lot more sense. And I say that because the Greek word for soon is used in other contexts in the New Testament in which the word soon literally means swiftly or speedily or at a rapid rate. And so my take on it is that this verse indicates that when the predicted events of the tribulation period first start to occur, and that's beginning in chapter 4 all the way through 18, then they will progress speedily in rapid succession. And particularly once you get to the bowl judgments, for example, which take place toward the, uh, the very end of the tribulation period, you know, it is speedily. Once those bowl judgments start to happen, I mean, Jesus' coming is just right around the corner. So I think that's what Jesus is referring to. I think he's referring to the fact that within the context of the book of Revelation, in which all these events of the end times are described, from that perspective, he will come speedily and at a rapid rate. So I don't think it means that Christ is going to come in the first century, because obviously, you know, that didn't happen. So common sense would tell us that that viewpoint can't be right. Yes. Now, you touched on an event you talked about, the rapture. What is the rapture, and where is it taught in the Bible? Well, that's a great question, too. And the rapture means catching up. It's the snatching up of believers. And what happens at the rapture is that the dead in Christ will literally be resurrected and and meet Christ up in the air. And then instantly, living believers will receive their resurrection bodies or glorified bodies. They'll be transformed into glorified bodies and meet Christ in the air. And then they will go back to heaven. And this is taught actually in a number of different places. I think one of the most common passages would be 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 17. And uh, that's the verse that tells us that the dead in Christ will rise first, and then, then we who are alive will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And interestingly, Pat, Paul goes on to say that, therefore, we are to comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. I think that uh, comforting each other with these words only works in the pre-tribulational view, which says the rapture happens before the tribulation period. Now, just suppose that post-tribulationism was correct. Suppose that the rapture didn't happen until after the tribulation. That verse would end up saying the following. Now, you as a Christian are going to go through all the judgments in the book of Revelation, including the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, and you're going to receive the wrath of God, and you're going to receive satanic wrath, and many of you will become martyrs. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. That's encouraging. That just doesn't work. (laughs) But it does make a great deal of sense if the church is to be raptured out before the tribulation period. That would be an encouragement. Now, beyond that, Pat, we find all kinds of other uh, supportive evidences. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 
Jesus says that we are to be delivered from the wrath to come. And the original Greek word for deliver means to draw or snatch out to oneself. We are to be snatched out from the wrath to come. And that's exactly what's going to happen you know, before the tribulation period. Christ will remove the church or snatch the church from the earth. Did you know that we don't see a single reference to the church in any passage in the Old Testament or the New Testament that deals with the tribulation? You know, in fact, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we find multiple references to the church. But then in chapter 4 and following, where the tribulation period begins, you don't see the church mentioned once, not once. So those kind of evidences lead me to believe that, in fact, the rapture will take place before the tribulation period. Now, many teach that the rapture was not taught in the early church, but it's a recent development. Is this correct? Well, it's interesting that you say that, because the more that we study church history, the more we discover earlier people who taught the doctrine of the rapture early on. But let's just suppose for the moment that that viewpoint is correct, that it emerged late in church history. In my thinking, this wrongly supposes that truth is somehow determined by time. Now, let me illustrate what I mean. In the first five centuries of church history, there were many false doctrines that emerged. And one example of that is baptismal regeneration. Baptismal regeneration says you don't get born again until you're baptized in water. And they taught that for five centuries. And we don't believe that today. At least most of us don't believe that today. Today, we believe that you become born again the moment that you trust in Jesus Christ. Now, the point that I'm making is that just because a doctrine was early does not mean it is true. And conversely, just because a doctrine emerged later on in church history does not mean it is incorrect. Now, to me, it makes great sense to think that eschatology or prophecy would become a focus later in church history. And honestly, I think this fits with the book of Daniel. When you think about it, you know, in the book of Daniel, we read the words of the Lord to Daniel to seal up the prophecies and that knowledge would be increased in the end times when some of these prophecies would begin to be fulfilled. The tenor of Scripture seems to indicate that in the end times, when some of these prophecies are going to be fulfilled, that's when a full understanding starts to occur for the meaning of these passages of Scripture. And I think that we're seeing that in our very day today. And, you know, uh, I also think that we have current events on our side, Pat. You know, when you look at, for example, what's happening in our world today, I think that we see the stage being set for quite a number of different prophecies to be fulfilled, not the least of which is the Ezekiel invasion into Israel, which will one day occur as led by Russia, Iran, Sudan, Turkey, Libya, and some other Muslim nations. The stage is being set for that, you know, even as we speak today. So, like I said before, I'm pretty convinced that this viewpoint is correct. And I won't divide fellowship over it, but I will try to teach as many people as I can about this. Yeah, you're referring, I believe, to the Ezekiel 38-39 prophecy, the Battle of Gog and Magog. Just tell us a little bit about that. There's an alliance of nations here led by Gog and Magog here. They're very interesting well, with what's going on today. Well, it is. When you look at the entire context there, starting in chapter 36 on through 39, the first thing that we are told that will happen is that Israel must become born again as a nation. You know, in uh, Ezekiel 37, we read about a valley of dry bones and how the bones come together, and then muscle grows on the bones, and then flesh grows on the bones. What that is, is a description of the rebirth of the nation of Israel. And so that's the precondition. That has to happen first. 
The second thing that has to happen according to the Ezekiel prophecy is that Jewish people from every nation in the world must stream back to the Holy Land. Now that's never happened before our day. Ever since 1948, when Israel became a nation again, Jewish people have been streaming back to the Holy Land from every nation of the world. But back in Bible times, that has never happened. In Bible times, Israel would go into subjectivity to or become subject to a single nation like Babylon, for example. And then once the captivity was over, Israel returned to the Holy Land from that one nation. But this is the first time in history where we see Jews returning to the Holy Land from virtually every nation of the world. And then the next thing that was to happen was to be an alliance of nations that would emerge that would include, like I said, Russia and Turkey and Sudan and Iran, Libya, and the nations that are near and surround the Black and the Caspian Seas. And that would include some of the stand nations like Afghanistan and Turkmenistan and so forth. The only difference in modern Iran and ancient Persia, which is what this verse talks about, is that ancient Persia has a much wider perimeter on the, on the left and the right, on the west and the east. And so the reference to um, Iran that I make here actually includes not just modern Iran, but the Muslim territories off to the east and the west. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, the main thing to keep in mind is that the text of, of Ezekiel indicates a massive invasion of Muslim nations working with Russia into Israel. Now, Pat, you know, it might surprise you to learn that this is talking about Russia joining Muslim nations, but this is nothing new. When you examine our recent past, it's very clear that uh, Russia has actually already done this. For example, back in the 1970s, when some uh, Muslim nations invaded and attacked Israel, guess who provided the weaponry and the intelligence? Russia. Russia was the one who did it. And even during the 1967 war, which was a big territorial dispute, Russia actually was moving to invade Israel. Their ships were moving toward Israel. They had their air force all pumped and ready. And it wasn't until the United States president stared down the Russian bear that they backed off. But the point that I'm making is that there's already a strong precedent for the Russians working with the Muslims against Israel. And so this is something that's yet to come, this, this big Ezekiel invasion, but the stage is being set as we speak. Yeah, as we speak of modern events, question I'm often asked is, is America mentioned in Bible prophecy? Well, that's probably one of the most common asked questions to me personally. And, you know, people have some pretty strange ideas on this. I know that there's some people who think that whenever the Bible mentions an eagle, that that must be the United States. But, you know, that's really not good theology. That's kind of like reading something into the Bible that's not there. And that's what we call eisegesis. What we ought to do is follow exegesis, and that's drawing the meaning out of the text of Scripture itself. There's also some people who believe that the reference to the land divided by waters in Isaiah 18 is a reference to America. After all, we have the Mississippi River. But when you look at the context, the territory is actually described as modern Sudan. So that's not America. And then some people think that the land of Tarshish in Ezekiel 38 is somehow a reference to America. But you know what, want to know what the truth is? Nobody knows for sure what Tarshish is. Some people say Spain. Some people say Great Britain. Some people say colonies of Western Europe. Other people say all the Western nations. So I don't think we ought to you know, pin all of our hopes on that verse. Truth be told, I don't think America is mentioned in Bible prophecy. And so the logical question becomes, why not? You would expect America to be mentioned because we're the primary ally 
of Israel. So why wouldn't America be mentioned? And I've come to the conclusion, Pat, that uh, it seems likely to me that in the future, the balance of power is going to swing toward a United States of Europe, a revived Roman Empire under the Antichrist. I think that's where the real power of the world is going to lie. And I think it's possible that the United States may weaken. And a lot of people talk about the different ways that we could weaken. It could be an EMP attack or a nuclear attack, or we might morally implode. I mean, there's just a lot of things that could happen. It's also possible America may weaken as a result of the rapture of the church, because every Christian will vanish out of the United States. And we probably have a lot more Christians here than in many other parts of the world. And so that means that the United States would be injured more by the rapture, probably, than any other nation out there. But here's one thing that's certain. The biblical text tells us, in no uncertain terms, that all the nations will stand against God and will stand against Israel. Now, do you think that reference to all the nations and all the peoples and all the kings of the earth could refer to the United States or at least include the United States? I don't see how we can avoid it. You know, during the tribulation period, when all the nations move against Israel, that would seem to even include the United States. And it's easy to see how that could happen in a post-rapture America. After all, it's Christians that now support Israel. Christians in America support Israel. At least most of them do. And once those Christians are removed at the rapture, it's likely that support for Israel will vanish quickly. And so, you know, sobering times lie ahead. I think that we're starting to see the stage set for a lot of what is yet to come. But these are days for discernment. You know, Ron, there's a popular book out there that says Babylon, Revelation 17, 18, refers to America. Could you build a case for that? Well, you know, I've heard that. And actually, the term Babylon is used according to different people. You know, depending on who you talk to, it could refer to Rome. It could refer to the Roman Catholic Church. It could refer to Great Britain. It could refer to the United States. Or more specifically, it could refer to New York. In my thinking, just as the term Israel always refers to Israel in the Bible, I believe that the term Babylon always refers to literal Babylon. Now, here's the thing, Pat. When you look at the Old Testament usage of Babylon, every single instance involves literal Babylon. Now, the book of Revelation is built off of the Old Testament prophets. And in every other case in the book of Revelation, we see that when the, when the book of Revelation draws from the Old Testament prophets, the understanding of those Old Testament prophets on specific topics prevails. It seems to me that since the Old Testament prophets, without exception, spoke of Babylon consistently as a literal city, and since the book of Revelation builds on the Old Testament prophets, then it's most likely to be understood as being a literal city in the book of Revelation, chapter 17 and 18. So the question becomes, why would the Antichrist want to set up a literal satellite office in Babylon? It may not be his permanent office, but it's going to be like a satellite headquarters. So why would he want to do that? I think the reason why he would want to do that is that he's going to want to control the oil fields in the end times. If there's one thing that the various militaries of the world need, it's oil. Tanks require oil. Jets require oil. Aircraft carriers require oil. And anybody that doesn't cooperate with the Antichrist doesn't get oil, and their militaries capitulate. And so, to me, that's the most logical reason for the Antichrist setting up a satellite headquarters in Babylon, 
you know, is, is to control the oil wealth of the world and the oil distribution of the world. Now, Ron, you know, one of the errors that I see a lot of Christians make is, I think we call it newspaper theology, where they tie, you know, events that happen today into the book of Revelation. You know, the great Chernobyl disaster there is Revelation 9, the star falling from heaven and poisoning the waters of the sea and making that connection of events today and tying it in, you know, to Revelation. The scorpions coming out the black pit are helicopters and all these things. How do we keep from going the other way into newspaper theology? Well, that's a critically important question, and I think a lot of Christians get it precisely opposite. You see, I think a lot of Christians take current events and then try to find Bible verses that support that and how to force those current events into the Bible. The better policy is to start with the Bible and understand what the prophets teach. And then once once you understand what the prophets teach, then you watch for logical correlations between prophecy in the Bible and current events. Now, it's real important, though, that I think that, you know, when you're looking at prophetic events, it's real important to be observers of the times. I say this because in Matthew 16, when Jesus is talking to some of the Jewish leaders, you know, these are Jewish leaders who should have recognized that Jesus was the divine Messiah. After all, the text of Scripture tells us that when the Messiah comes, the blind will see and the deaf will hear and the lame will walk. The Jewish leaders should have seen Jesus as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. But Jesus chastises them and says that you can't even read the signs of the times. The prophecies were there, but Jesus says you can't even read the signs of the times. Well, I think that we're in danger of that today. Uh, On the one hand, we don't want to practice newspaper exegesis and read newspapers into the Bible, but we do want to learn what the Bible says about prophecy and to watch for the signs of the times. We cannot set dates. We don't know the day or the hour of the Lord's return. But I think that when leaves come upon a tree, you know that summer is near. And likewise, when you see the signs of the times taking place, or when you see the stage being set for some of these signs, I think you can legitimately draw the conclusion and the inference that we are actually in the season of the Lord's return. So you don't set dates. You don't get sensational. In fact, in First Peter, we're told to be sober-minded about prophecy. And the way to be sober-minded is to, is to learn Scripture, to learn what the Bible says about all this prophecy. And again, that's one of the reasons why I wrote this book. What are some of the significant signs of the times uh, that we're seeing today? Well, you know, I think that there's different categories of signs, and I think that the super sign that took place was the rebirth of Israel. And without that one sign, I don't think any of the other signs make a whole lot of sense. Uh, But once that one sign, the rebirth of Israel, takes place, then you watch for other key signs. For example, I think that there are moral signs of the times. And I think that Paul is one of our best sources on this. You know, in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 5, for example, uh, the text tells us that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. And Paul talks about how there's going to be lovers of self and lovers of money, for example, and lovers of pleasure. It's interesting that lovers of self might be considered to be, you know, hedonism, and lovers of money is materialism, and lovers of pleasure is hedonism, you know? So I I think that some of these philosophies that we witness today constitute a fulfillment of some of what Paul warned about. There's also religious signs of the times with the rise of false Christs and false prophets and false teachers, and especially increasing apostasy in the church. 1 Timothy 4 warns us that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, 
and devote themselves to deceitful spirits. As you know, Pat, many of the cults and false world religions have actually come from what they think are angels, but in fact are demonic spirits. There's also national alignment signs of the times. An example of that would be the Ezekiel 36 to 39 passage that we talked about a little bit earlier, with Russia and Iran, Sudan, Turkey, Libya, and Muslim nations uh, attacking Israel at some point in the future, and how the uh, stage is now being set for that. Certainly, there's also what's called earth and sky signs of the times, earth and sky signs of the times. And this refers to various things like earthquakes and signs in the heavens and wormwood, which is going to be a giant asteroid that strikes the Earth. And then finally, there are technological signs of the times. An example of that would be how the gospel must be preached to every nation in the world. With modern technology, including satellites and the Internet and global media and translation technologies, publishing technologies, rapid transportation and the like, this has never been more possible. Also, the mark of the beast in the future. This will take place right in the middle of the tribulation period when people are required to take the mark of the beast. But the only way that mark of the beast can actually occur is if we live in a cashless society. And today we are witnessing the world go cashless before our very eyes. Today we use 70% less cash than we used to 10 years ago. And the president of the Visa Corporation, the guy that puts out the Visa card, has recently said that in the, he suspects that in the next five years, people will be charged a surcharge whenever they try to use cash in any, any establishment. So again, I, I mean, there's a lot of different kind of signs of the times. I think the stage is being set for many of these. And that's one of the reasons why I, I often talk about the convergence effect. You see many different sides, signs of the times converging at a point in the not-too-distant future. Well, Ron, as we bring this fascinating show to a close, What are some practical applications for Christians when it comes to this area of Bible prophecy? One thing I like to point out to Christians is that God doesn't just give us prophecy to, you know, give us information about the future. One of the reasons why God gives us prophecy is to change the way we live as Christians. Interestingly, many of the prophecies that you find, particularly in the New Testament, have right beside them an exhortation to live righteously. And so because of that, I think that the more you understand about Bible prophecy, the more the positive effect it can have on the way that you behave and the way that you live as a Christian. I think secondly, understanding prophecy can give you an eternal perspective. In Colossians 3, we are told to focus on the things of heaven, to keep our minds on the things of heaven. And there's two things there to make note of. First of all, it's a present tense. We are to continually focus on the things of heaven. Secondly, it's an imperative, meaning it's a command. We don't have a choice in the matter. God tells us he wants us to perpetually, 24-7, have an eternal perspective that focuses on the things of heaven. And one of the best ways to develop that eternal perspective is to understand Bible prophecy. Finally, I would say that Bible prophecy exalts God. The more you know about prophecy, the more exalted view you're going to have about God in general and Jesus Christ in particular. And so it's just good all around to understand what Bible prophecy teaches. You've been listening to our interview with Dr. Ron Rhodes, president of Reasoning from the Scriptures Ministry, and we're highlighting his new book, The Bible Prophecy Answer Book. So, Ron, if people want more information on you and your ministry and the things that you've written, where can they go to find that information? Well, they can find it at ronrhodes.org. That's R-O-N-R-H-O-D-E-S.org. And there's an awful lot of free stuff that you can download there. 
you can sign up for our newsletter, and we don't ask for money for that. So, I mean, if it's something that can help you, stop by and sign up. Once again, that's Dr. Ron Rhodes, president of Reasoning from the Scriptures, ministry and expert in the area of Bible prophecy and also in the world of the cults and the occult. So you want to go to his website there for more information and follow Dr. Ron Rhodes. A lot of valuable resources and information there. So, Ron, thanks for being on Evidence and Answers once again. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value to you, would you please consider partnering with us? Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll see we have a wide variety of resources available to you including Pat's articles, additional audio, and Pat's books. So be sure to share our website with your family, your friends, and of course your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers.